All right, we're going to be uh, continuing our study of George Mueller's autobiography. We are drawing close to the end here. Um, two more chapters in the conclusion after today, and uh, probably we'll cover both chapters next week. Um, my plan is probably for us to do uh, reading through an Old Testament book a chapter at a time. Um, as far as our next thing to do, just to switch it up from doing a book, since we've been doing this book for quite a while. Uh, and I will finalize the plans on that and let you know ahead of time, uh, hopefully by next week. And then uh, today in the morning service, we're going to start our study through First Peter. And so that should be a good study, uh, some very uh, relevant, important truths for us to, to look at. So those are some plans as far as things uh, for right now, as far as the... Uh, morning, Sunday morning kind of plans. Uh, so, chapter 22, Mueller says this, the Christian should never worry about tomorrow or give sparingly because of a possible future need. Only the present moment is ours to serve the Lord and tomorrow may never come. Money is really worth no more than as it can be used to accomplish the Lord's work. Life is worth as much as it is spent for the Lord's service. Do you agree with this viewpoint on money and time? Why or why not? Okay. What would be, somebody might read this and they might say, well, that's kind of a flippant attitude toward these things. You're sort of living penniless and or like a, almost like a day laborer because you're not worried about the future and all that sort of thing. Is that what he's saying? Is he saying never plan for the future? I think it's pretty clear. I mean, he, I mean, later in this chapter, he's going to say, I have all this money stored up for this future project, right? So he's not saying never save up money for the, for the future. He's saying, what is our attitude toward money? And the two attitudes that we tend to have are worry or stinginess when it comes to money, right? worry about what might happen in the future or stinginess because we see a need that we have capacity to meet but we say well I won't meet this because what about me tomorrow or I won't meet this because here's this other thing I'd rather do later on and if I do this then I'm not going to be able to do that and so this statement only the present moment is ours to serve the Lord and tomorrow may never come is not a statement of hopelessness it's just a statement of reality right Norma? Yeah, life is short, so it's focused. Okay, good, good, all right. What else? Other thoughts on this? Yeah, Rob. I, mean, I can honestly say I wish was that that was my viewpoint. Yeah. Honestly, I do fall short of that. Yeah. Um, there, I think it's important to recognize there are different paths to reach the goal that he's setting out for us, right? Which I think is a God-honoring goal. Because the Bible says, I mean, Jesus said to his disciples, don't worry about tomorrow, right? Um, because if God can provide for the birds in heaven, he can provide for you. Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, those who out of their great poverty gave to meet the needs of other poor people in another region, the churches who needed help in Jerusalem, the churches in Macedonia, present-day Greece, gave to help the church in Jerusalem. 
and uh, without necessarily a huge amount of thought for the fact that they were in terrific need. Um, and then there's the reality that you and I could have, I don't know, let's just throw a number out there. You could have $50,000 saved up, right? And still have an attitude of, I don't know what tomorrow is going to, be look like, going to look like, so if there is a present day opportunity to serve God, I'm going to take advantage of it. It's just way harder if that's the situation than if you... Um, sure. <laughs> right. Because agree that you have a need to the fact, I think I've said this before, there are a number of people that I've observed who by the world standards have very little but tend to be very generous because they themselves I think have often been in need and had others to help them and so then in that respect I think it's easier for them to see the value of generosity. Whereas for people, I mean there's all these warnings in the New Testament about the rich, people who are rich struggle with that because if you're never in need, you don't realize how significant that is for you to help someone else. And if you're never in need, then you don't have to depend on God as much. And if you're never in need, there's these temptations to get so consumed with having and preserving what you have that it lends itself toward worry and toward stinginess. So the opposite is generosity and... Trust that God will take care of the future? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think this point is really, is really significant too. Money is worth no more than as it can be used to accomplish the Lord's work, right? So what we tend to think is money is worth what it is relative to the currency exchange. Money is worth what it is relative to gold. Money is worth what it is relative to silver. Money is worth what it is relative to inflation, right? And he's saying forget all that for the moment. Money is only as valuable as it can be used to accomplish God's work. So if I have 50 bucks and I go buy a bunch of toys, or maybe one toy, given the inflation question. Uh, or I have 50 bucks, and I say, how can I use this to encourage someone else today? That could be the two of us going out and grabbing coffee and talking about something about God. That could be that person needs help with gas. That could be uh, having that person over for dinner. There's any number of opportunities for us to use $50 in a way that's not just spent on the pursuit of our pleasures. Now. Is it always wrong for us to say, hey, I really could use a new pair of shoes, so I'm going to use the 50 bucks to buy the shoes? No. But if that is our first and only and consistent go-to, what can I do for me with this? Then I think we start to lose sight of this idea that our money is to meant to serve God. Same thing with life, because I think this is even more significant. Like, money is replaceable. Sometimes it doesn't seem like it's easy to replace, but money is replaceable, right? If you were penniless tomorrow, if you worked hard, sooner or later you would theoretically be in a position where you had a little bit more than you have in that moment, right? You can't get life back, right? You cannot rewind and go back and redo those moments. Um, I was grabbing lunch on Friday and was talking with the guy invited him to the church. He said something about, oh, I don't live around here, but I like to check out churches. I took this comparative religions class, but I'm a Christian, but, you know, all these sorts of things. And what I should have done in that moment was probably push him a little bit more to explore the, I took a comparative religions class, but I'm a Christian, but I jump around and visit various churches. 
to see where he was actually at with God. And I didn't, and I regret that. But the reality is, I can't rewind and redo that moment, right? Can I do better the next time? Sure. But the point is, life is not something that you can rebuild, right? You and I can add no moments to the span of add a few dollars to our bank accounts, theoretically, right? But Jesus said, what, you know, which of you by worrying can add a moment to the span of his life or an inch to his height? Those things are fixed. The day of our death and our height are fixed, right? I did see a weird article about a leg lengthening surgery, but practically speaking, given that that's like an $80,000 thing, our height is fixed, right? So my point is to say, I think he's summarizing some truths from uh, what Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, particularly. Then he says, any occupation can be used to serve the Lord. God is not likely to bless anything that leads a believer to depend more on himself or his circumstances than on the living God. This, I think, takes it a step beyond, um, well, let me finish reading this and then I'll get to that in a minute. To have an extravagant shop, to use boastful advertisements, or to rent the most desirable and expensive location in order to have a prosperous business. Of course, his shop should be clean and orderly. He should announce the availability of his product and be located conveniently, but he must not trust in these things as the reason for his ultimate success. How do these principles apply either to your work or to our church? Bob? Yeah. And then there are these leads that I can buy. And the first six or seven months of this year, not one of those leads turned into a client, which was either one. But God sent me referrals. God sent me, had different things happen. And so the first six or seven months of this year, none of my efforts turned into new clients unbelievable so I know it's not the exact same thing but that's what it made me think of I was like it's true yeah every single client is in control is my paycheck is in God's control 100% sure and it's hard for us to realize that from a faith perspective I think mm -hmm. but also from a, a practical practical perspective how do I justify they're not taking certain efforts or, uh, or realizing that they don't, they don't do it. Sure. Okay. Other thoughts? Jonathan? I work at a government job, so it's a little different. Right. Um, but there's been many times when they've asked me if I wanted uh, a, new, a new chair or a new this or a new that. And I'm like, why? What's wrong with the old one? Yeah. <laughs> like, you know. They yeah. throw money away like it's ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Other thoughts on this? Patience. Okay. Patience is important. What else? What, if we're not depending on our efforts primarily to accomplish things, let's go to the church for a moment. What should we be depending on? And what does that look like? If you and I don't save people, who's going to save people? So who do we need to talk to about saving people? God, right? 
there has been such this huge push in the last 30 years or even the last 50 years to say what are principles for an effective business let's apply that to the church Mueller is actually saying those aren't principles for an effective business let alone the church right so now should you be should you use no common sense in running your business that's not the point his point is to say if you get to a point where you um, he talks about this idea of hiring salesmen uh, let me see how he puts it I thought it was an apt way of putting it people who have persuasive ways that they gain an advantage over the customers they convince them not only to buy the articles for which they ask whether suitable or not but they also induce customers to buy things they did not intend to buy at all this is no less than defrauding people in a subtle way leading them into the sin of purchasing beyond their means or at least spending their money needlessly. That's like the foundation of modern advertising and sales, right? You don't need this, so, um, uh, but, but you should buy it anyway, right? Now, I think there's a tension here because depending on how you define need, I mean, unless you are a uh, concert flutist, you don't need a musical instrument, right? Per se. But, there's, it's not that there's no benefit in it, right? I think the difference might be, let's say somebody walks in and they have a student in elementary school and you can tell they can't afford the $50,000 flute. I mean, then you, maybe you wouldn't sell them on that one, right? You'd say, here's one that's more suitable for, for your needs at the moment. Or I was talking with a friend and, um, you know, uh, discussion about a violin. You know, here's somebody who has a $25,000 violin and Maybe they can only afford like a $2,500 violin, right? Um, yeah, I'm just saying there's, there's, uh, there's a temptation to say, well, so-and-so has this, so I must have this. And then it's easy for us to step in and be like, yes, you absolutely need this because we see an opportunity to gain an advantage. Um, yes, Rob? <coughs> Yesterday I had a flute player from Windsor come over uh, with his, but he bought a very expensive instrument, flute and piccolo, from our competitors, which are now based in Birmingham. They relocated to West Bloomfield. But he was like, I fell for all the sales tricks and all this. They you know, you know, manipulated me that. And so I said, well, you bought it there. Why aren't you going there? And he said, because I know that they manipulated the, all the tactics, he said, and all that. So you have, you're dealing with one as a reputation, but as a church, yeah. I'm going to be doing it for God, but also there's a reputation thing involved. Sure. Um, trying to tie it into the point that you're making that um, you can lose something too by gaining something. Okay. Good. Good. Um, so I think this is where um, This is where my burden is with regard to moving forward for us as a church, right? Could we theoretically say we want to have a brand new church building that looks a certain way? We could say that. Uh, is that wise? I mean, in light of what he's saying here, and in light of a number of other things we've talked about, I think the answer would be no. Um, if the primary focus is, 
if we have blank, we will succeed as a church, right? Because here's the thing, and this was a discussion I was having with my friend. Here's his child with the $2,500 violin, whose instructor said, I think you could do better if you had the more expensive one. But here's this other person with the $25,000 one that's not doing as well because there's less effort being put into it. To the extent that our trust is in having our building look a certain way, having our website look a certain way, having our array of programs that we offer people being a certain way, we are not trusting in God. Now, I did not say we can't have any of those things. I said to the extent that we trust in those things, we're not trusting in God. So, does that mean we're never ever going to do any sort of changes in decor? No. It just means we have to be very careful that we're guarding against the temptation to say, if this looks this way, then people will come. What are the reasons that people come to church? Because they have some sort of significant need and because God is working in their hearts. Do either of those have anything to do with the color of paint on the walls? No. It could be like bright orange and somebody could still get saved. Some of you are like, I don't know about that. But that, the, the, the point is, it is not the appearance of things or the feel of things that saves people. So, here, here's the thing that I just want to really hammer home to us. If you do not talk to lost people about Jesus, they will not get saved and they will not come here. That's really the bottom line. So, what has to happen regardless of all those things? You and I have to be talking to lost people about Jesus and you and I have to be talking to Jesus about lost people. That's really what it comes down to. Everything else is support is you know extra, Bob. I agree wholeheartedly. Just obviously we have to have a balance. Sure. Like you said, you know you still want to have things clean and orderly. So do we need gold plated views? No. No. But should we have neatness and in, in order? So again, I think that's. Always trying to find that. Find the balance, balance. right, yeah. I, I'm not saying you're not saying that, but I think that's one of the things that's hard is where there is some uh, dilapidation. Right. You know, how much time and energy do we put into that? that? That's the thing I think that is the hard part is figuring out what that balance is. Sure. So if we said, all right, we can do this ourselves, or we can pay somebody a little bit more to do it, and then we don't, for example, um, I don't know, have paint splatter all over the ceiling tiles, then yes, maybe it's worth having paying someone a little bit extra so that it's neat and orderly, right? But there's a difference, obviously, like you're saying, between that and saying, what is the deluxe model of everything? Let's just get the absolute best, because then that will for sure produce a particular result, which is obviously not true. Now, we've tended to operate more on the other side of things, which is, Let's spend as little as possible for as long as possible. And some of that's potentially catching up with us. And some of that's just personality of pastors who've been here before. Some of that's just 
mm, perhaps on our part a lack of motivation to say, all right, we're going to do this. Some of this is perhaps, uh, I don't know if I would say poor leadership so much as just just uh, the challenges of figuring out how to navigate. Here's everybody's different ideas, and here's what specifically we're going to do as a church. So I think the bottom line is just, here's the moment that we're at. What do we need to do as far as the next step? Keeping these principles in mind, not trusting in our own efforts, spending much time in prayer, far more time in prayer than we are in mm, shopping for upgrades, let's say, right? So let me just give you an illustration of this personally. So um, this idea of depending on yourself instead of in your circumstances or have opportunities to boast, those sorts of things. Um, so when it comes to something like bikes, right? Um, there was a guy who was selling a bike that was really nice and I got a good deal on it. And I rode it for a while and I realized, you know what? I don't need a bike this nice because the, it, it is not significantly better than the one I had before. And primarily the only reason for me to have this bike is to say, hey, look at how nice my bike is, right? So here's this bike that was, I think, $1,400 brand new. I got it for way less than that. But quite honestly, the one that was a few hundred dollars is perfectly fine for what I need, right? That's the sort of thing that I'm talking about. The marketing side of things says, you need this. Why? Because it has sturdier axles, okay? I don't weigh 300 pounds. I wasn't likely to break the cheaper one. I'm not likely to break the more expensive one. You need this because it is four pounds lighter. Do you know what will help the bike ride better? Is if I lose four pounds and not the bike, right? Um, this has this option for this fancy upgrade and this shiny clicky thing that you can do and it will be so much better and it will feel so much... Does the other one shift gears? Yes. Does it make a little bit more noise? Yes. Do I hear the noise between running over sticks and all those? No. We are so easily sucked into this idea that I have to have this other thing because, and the reasons because really are not either true or as significant as they're made out to be. And so we just have to keep all those things in mind. Um, talks about reasons why God might or might not prosper your work. We already mentioned the good salesman kind of idea. Uh, this idea of about this time of year, uh, this is our busy time or this is our slow time. He says, this implies they are not seeking God daily about their calling. Instead, they ascribe their prosperity to times and seasons. That's a little bit of a rebuke. Like, well, people don't usually visit in the winter time. Okay. Well, again, we're just saying, well, when the weather's nice, people will come to church. If that's actually what we believe about our commitment to church, that's a serious problem, right? But to the extent that we think that times and seasons cause people... And there's a little bit of this when it comes to things like Easter and Christmas, right? We tend to think in the back of our minds, Easter and Christmas are strategic times to invite people to church. And maybe they are, but you know what will not be effective if we only think Easter and Christmas are the times to target people coming to church? If we just do some sort of activity and we don't pray about it, right? Because I think we've all seen... There are times when we've put a lot of effort, and I'm not saying the effort was bad, I'm not saying it was sinful, I'm not saying it was a waste, but we've put a lot of effort into putting together some sort of event, whether it be vacation Bible school or a Bible study or an Easter thing or a Christmas thing, and we've had what, like one visitor? 
And then there's been other Sundays when we've had none of those things, but somebody presumably has prayed, and then we've had a couple of people show up. Now, retaining those people, continue to minister to them, that's a whole other thing we've got to work on. But the reality is, just having the program or saying, well, it's Christmas, for sure lost people are going to come because it's Christmas. There's so many reasons why that might not actually be true, right? I'm not saying we're not going to do some special music at Christmas and Easter. I'm saying, to the extent that we think us having a special program at those times is the reason people are going to be here, or that people are going to be saved because of it automatically, uh, I think it would be the same sort of thing that he's warning us about here. Um, he talks about uh, trying to start into something when not prepared with capital or opportunity. So here's the question, and I, I'm not sure that he's 100% right on this, but it's at least a question worth considering. If it is my Heavenly Father's will that I begin this business, he would have given me the money that I need to get started, and since he has not, is this a plain indication for now that I should remain at my present job? So, it is not enough that we seek God's help for spiritual things. We should seek His help and blessing by prayer and supplication for all our ordinary concerns in life. So, should we go into $100,000 of debt to try to address some sort of facility need? I mean, to the point that what he's saying here, if God wanted us to do it, that he could theoretically provide the money. Is that true? I think so. So to the extent that something becomes extravagance rather than need, again, we've had the whole discussion about like mortgages on houses, right? So if we had a plan and said in 10 years we can pay this off based on a very conservative estimate of giving and so forth, could we take out some kind of a loan? I don't think that that would automatically be sinful. But there's a big difference between taking out a loan where you say, if we put 10000 a year toward this for 10 years, we'll pay it off, and taking out a loan where you say you have to put 50000 a year toward it for 10 years to pay it off. Those are two completely different scenarios. One is possible. The other is like, unless some, a lot of really unexpected things happen, this is not going to end well, right? So I just think, uh, I think as, again, as we look at all these things, we have to be wise in our approach to them. Any other quick thoughts on this? His points about times and seasons, selling things. Bob? I, I know it's intertwined in all of this, but you know, just considering our stewardship. Okay. It, you know, it's, it's not just the money, it's the time, it's the effort, it's all of those things together. Sure. And I, I think that's where I was, was most convicted on this is, you know, how am I using everything? Sure as the starting point, but how am I praying about how to use everything as well? Yeah. So let me, let me just write this out. We've talked about this sort of thing before, but how many hours are there in a week? Okay. Now, uh, 168 hours in a week. Um, let's say that you have a decent week and you spend seven hours a night sleeping, okay? Wow. <laughs> you think that's a lot or a little? That's good. Not a 
So 7 times 7 equals 49, okay? Let's say, let's say you're working 40 to 50 hours between working and commuting. Let's just say, so here's sleep, here's work, okay? So we'll just call that another 50, just as a ballpark, okay? Um, let's say that you then have to take some time to eat. Let's say the sum total of the time that you take to eat between time with your family and lunch and breakfast and all that. Let's say that's two hours a day, so we'll call that another 14 hours. Might be more, might be less. So that puts us at just the necessary things that have to happen every week. That puts us at 100 and, no wait, six and five, that'd be 113. 113 hours, okay? So 168 minus 113 puts us at what? 55 hours a week. So you basically have theoretic, now I understand there's a lot of other things that we do in a given week, but I'm just saying, um, theoretically, we have the equivalent of another job's worth of time to do things, theoretically. I understand that's different for different people at different points. If you're retired, it's a lot more. If you work a job where you have to commute a long way, it's a lot less. And there are other things that we obviously have to do. But even if we dropped 15 or 20 hours off of this, if you had 40 hours a week, and here's the question, this was a, a seminar that I was taking this week, how much of that time are you doing toward, as Matthew 28 would talk about, making disciples? Of your 30 to 40 hours of potentially free time in a given week, how much of that is spent toward making disciples? How much of that is spent toward prayer? This is where I think Bob's point about stewardship of our time I think really starts to hit home because we can rationalize pretty well uh, money because we feel like it's more fixed maybe. But when it comes to time, if 20 hours of this is spent doing TV or, some, or entertainment and 30 minutes is spent doing spiritual things, prayer, Bible, etc., having a conversation with somebody. I think we'd agree that's kind of skewed, right? So to the extent that we've had conversations about this before, I think we would all do well to say, I'm going to write out this week how I spend my time. Now, there's a danger of this because to the extent that we write it out, as we write it out, we start to be convicted and then we want to fudge the numbers a little bit, right? <laughs> but if you can do this honestly and, and write it out over the course of your week and say, here's how I'm spending my time, then we say, all right, if our church is to move forward, what needs to change in my life personally, right? Because what we tend to do is we think in America that advertising and money is going to fix any problem, right? If more people know where the church is, let's get a different sign. If things look a certain way about the building, people will come. People don't even know what the building looks like on the inside until they show up here, right? So that's kind of a silly point to say, well, if the building looks a certain way, then people will show up. So again, I am not saying we're not going to fix things. I'm just saying if we think really clearly and specifically about things, what has to happen before anything internally 
what has to happen instead of, you know, so we tried doing an advertising push on Facebook, which maybe wasn't the best thing because maybe Facebook wasn't the right platform. You know how many people showed up from that? Zero. Zero. Do you know how many people have showed up because they said, I just moved to the area and I was looking for a church and I did a Google search and we happened to show up here? Probably at least 10. Do you know how many people have showed up because you invited them? A lot more than that. So in terms of effectiveness and raw numbers, our greatest investment in the future of our church is to look at our lives and say, how am I spending my time? If I'm not spending any time praying or any time reaching out to people around me or very little, our church will not do well because the one is we're not asking God for his help and he's the one that's going to accomplish it. And the other is we're not being obedient and God is not obligated to bless disobedience, right? So, coming back to some of these other points that he's making, he says, uh, several of the orphans who left the establishment during this year has been converted before they left. Other young people under our care a few years ago are strong Christians today. The spiritual growth of children gives us joy and comfort. Amid difficulties, trials, and discouragements, we have abundant reason to praise God for his goodness and to go forward in the strength of the Lord. Why is this reminder about spiritual growth important when thinking about the work of the orphanages and Mueller's ministry particularly? Why is it important that he's talking about kids and their spiritual status before God? Heaven? Okay. Because that's what's most important eternally. What else? Huh? That was one of his main goals. Okay. We tend to think that his goal was to keep things financially solvent because he talks a lot about that. But the fact is, that was just the pathway to accomplishing the goal, right? And that's the thing. We tend to get hung up on a step along the way as being the ultimate goal, right? Be at church. Why? The point of being at church is not to be at church. Why are you supposed to be at church? Okay, worship, Sandra. Okay. Okay. And those things are all good, but let's take it a step further. What's the point of learning about God, Bob? Okay. Okay, let's take, it, let's take it a step further. So we say serve him, and we might say serve him is doing all these things connected to the church. What's the point of that, Rob? Okay. Okay, to be mature, Evan? Okay, so that... Okay. So let's bring all this together. God is glorified when we do all these things or when all these things are happening so that his work in the world is pushed forward, right? So if, the, you know, we say you should read your Bible. Okay, great. 
Why? So that you know God. Why? So that you grow to be more like God. Why? So that you glorify God. How? By telling people about Jesus. Why? So God's kingdom is built. Why? So that more people praise God, so that God is glorified and God is above all and in all and through all and receives all the praise. What we tend to do is stop way back here and say, well, as long as I read my Bible, that's the point of what I was supposed to do as a Christian today. Or as long as I have my backside sitting in the church, that's the point of Sunday, right? The point of it is not just to be, I want you to be here, don't get me wrong. I want you to read your Bible. But if we get stuck at an earlier point and we forget the why, we can do the things over and over again, day after day, year after year, and not really be accomplishing a whole lot, right? Um, the point is, what is God doing in the world through us and all these things are just contributing to that ultimate goal. They're not the goal in and of themselves. He says here, Make certain that not even the least degree of your own righteousness is presented to God as a ground for acceptance. If you believe in the Lord Jesus, the things you request should be for God's honor. In what ways is it easy to ask for things only for ourselves and not God's honor? Or what are some motivations we might have that cause us to ask for things not for God's honor? Make life easier. Yeah, so life is easier. Okay, comfort, ease, okay. Yeah, so that we feel happy, so that we look good to other people. Well, that's the one we're supposed to do, right? But uh, the, what are we sometimes doing instead of that? Oh, so that we would be glorified. I'm sorry, I misheard you. So that we would be glorified, right? And that's obviously a wrong focus, right? Okay. He says also, frequently we fail in not continuing in prayer until the blessing is obtained and in not expecting the blessing. Is perseverance necessary to see God work at times? Yeah, probably a lot more than we realize, right? Then he gives some reasons about why um, efforts might fail to produce conversions. He talks about this on pages 215 and 216. This is actually the next chapter. He says, if you're in the habit of distributing tracts that have never seen fruit, think about these things. If you desire honor for yourself, this is Sanders' point just a moment ago, the Lord must put you aside as a vessel unfit for the master's use. So if you're giving someone a tract so that you can say, hey, look at me, God's not going to honor that, Right? There's a difference, I think, between doing that and saying, hey, I've been doing this, and I've been encouraged by God's work, and I think you should do it too, so you could be encouraged by God's work. But there's kind of a thin line between, I'm telling you this so you can be encouraged and motivated, and I'm telling you this so that you think well of me, right? And we have to always guard against that. So he said, what's your reason for doing it, to honor yourself or God? He said, are you preceding your labors with earnest, diligent prayer? The answer is no. God's not particularly likely to bless efforts in which we don't ask for his help. Because ultimately he's the one that's accomplishing it. Could he do it anyway? Absolutely. But is he likely? Not necessarily. Walk through every open door, be ready in season and out of season as if everything depends on your labor. Now wait a minute. If we're supposed to depend on God, why do we work as though it depends on us? Because it is this intersection between us doing everything God has called us to do and God supplying the power for the work that produces the effort. God doesn't honor laziness, and God doesn't honor trust in ourselves. 
we can't, neither of those, both of those are, are dangers, but to the extent that we are diligent and we trust in God, we're in the place where God is likely to bless the work, right? He says the blessing of the Lord should also be expected. If we go, if we say, I want God to be honored, and I pray for God to do this, and I took the opportunity, but you really don't think anything's going to come of it. That's not a particularly faith-filled sort of approach to things, is it? And this is a danger, right? Because it is really easy for us to fall in this. I did this before, and I didn't see it work. Or I did this before, and I didn't see any results. Or I did this before, and the thing that I thought was going to happen didn't happen. It is really easy for us to keep doing it because we think we ought to, and not really expect that God's going to do anything of it, right? Bring anything from it. Yes? Yeah. Um, the seminar that I was um, listening to this week, um, this church actually did a church internship in Ohio uh, man, 18 years ago. Um, they said that, uh, so there's not necessarily anything wrong with like sportsmen's dinners or door-to-door calling or VBS or any of those sorts of things. But they said to the extent that people have uh, caught a vision for reaching out to the people around them and are doing Bible studies with those people and pointing them to Jesus and all that sort of thing, they've said, we don't have to do all those things anymore and people are still here, right? So uh, there's, a, there's a thought process that says, if you don't knock on doors, you don't love Jesus. I think we need to be careful of that. Um, I'm not attacking, I'm just talking generally. Um, and I think there's, there's, mm, there's maybe been moments in the past where I think I've trended a little bit that direction. I, my, my, if we never talk to anybody about, anybody about Jesus, there's a problem, right? I don't know, his point in this was, if you go and talk to a stranger, it's going to be uncomfortable. And it's not bad to do that, and we should periodically do that, but that probably should not be our primary means of reaching people with the gospel. Because if we look at the gospel in the New Testament, Paul and Silas talk to the Philippian jailer, and he talks to his family, his whole household is converted, right? Lydia gets saved, and her whole family gets converted. They go and preach in the synagogue, and then they get kicked out of the synagogue, and then over time, the guy who heard this message when they were in the synagogue gets converted, and then other people in town get converted. Like, there seems to be these networks of relationships through which the gospel spreads. So I think we should take advantage of those without being um, fearful of the one-off opportunities we have during the course of the day. The last point he makes is, persevere if this blessing is withheld from our sight for a long time. Adoniram Judson was in Burma for 17 years, I think, before he had a convert. So there are definitely times and places where there's a long stretch and nobody trusts Jesus, right? But I think it's a little bit different to say, 
I am praying fervently for hours a day, and I'm spending hours a day going out and talking to people about Jesus, and there's no results for a long time, then we can say, well, I'm just going to have to be patient for God to work. Versus, eh, I said something to one person this week for five minutes, and I prayed for two minutes, and I'm not seeing any results. Well, in that case, I think we see where we need to start with things. Last little point here from this chapter. He said, my, only, my beloved daughter, my only child and a believer for several years became ill. There seemed to be no hope for her recovery, but faith triumphed. She gets better after the course of some weeks. How should we think about Mueller's daughter recovering from, I think it was typhus, when his infant son died suddenly and without much hope earlier in his ministry? Because his, his response and the outcome and all of that seems to be a little bit different here. Why? How, how are we supposed to think about that? Okay, I think that's a very reasonable answer. The first experience helped him with the second. Do we feel like his theology changed? Maybe his uh, application. Possibly his application, okay. Did he lack faith at the first point? I don't think we would say that. Uh, was it true that in either case, if his child had gone to be with Jesus, it would be better? Yes. Was it true that God had the power to heal in both cases? Yes. The thing that I think I wonder was all of the things that he went through that led him to this point relative to the other point ten years or so before, five years before, did that prepare him to come before God in a way that was... Mm, with yeah, you know, so God can you know there's the the guy that comes to Jesus for someone to be healed, and he said Jesus says do you believe? And he says I believe. Help my unbelief. Like he recognizes I don't have very much faith, right? So it's not dependent on the amount of our faith. But I do wonder if he was in a I don't and I'm trying to be careful here a better position for God to say yes because of all the work God had done in his heart between point A and point B. Does that make sense? And I don't know the answer to that question. It's just one of these things that crosses my mind that I think we would do well to ponder. Not that if I believe more in God, God is obligated to do exactly the thing I'm asking. Bob? Well, I think that goes to the point that, not to look at it fatalistically, but whatever happens is what was supposed to happen. And that reason behind that is because circumstance was to draw his people closer to him. Yeah. So. It's a question we ultimately can't answer, I guess, but it's, I think, worth considering from the perspective of if we are benefiting from the lessons God is teaching us along the way, and if we are drawing closer to God, and if our faith is increasing, and we are good stewards of the opportunities God gives us up to a particular point, then God will often bless that and give us more opportunities to be stewards of, I guess is the thing I'm trying to say. So, All right, let's close in prayer a little bit past our time. Dear God, thank you for these lessons to consider. I pray that you would help us to be faithful. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.